I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. Oh, who's going to go? And I'm Tim McIntosh. <laughs> and we also have Sean, Sean's awesome. Oh, Sean's awesome. And yeah. I'm also here, Sean. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is closer. It's, we and nailed it's that. A, it's a podcast <laughs> for the incurable reader on which we are now discussing Shinwa Ashebi's book, Things Fall Apart. And the gang's all here. How great is that? The best day. Tim, so glad that you're here. So glad to to be having a conversation with all four of us to end 2023. It just felt like the right thing to do to have all of us here on an episode. So I'm so glad you could make it. Was that to me, David? Right back at yeah. you. Was, I'm sorry. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I know it's to me or to all of us. Uh, yeah. Well, it was just kind of kind of generally, but in particular, Tim, it's been a little, it's been a couple books since you've been on, right? So, you know, we're just thrilled to have you back and we know our listeners are as well. So, hi. Hi, it's nice to be back. <laughs> this is a book that was written in 1958 by the Nigerian writer Shinwa Achebe, as we mentioned. Um, Heidi, would you like to, to say, say Shinwa? You really, I Heidi love loves saying, saying his this name. name. I love yeah. it. I love saying Shinwa Shabi. Nice, nice. Tim, how are you at pronouncing the names in this book? Like, do you feel pretty pretty comfortable? Because let me tell you, I do not. No, I don't either. I don't either. Okay. Well, we're going to do our best to to do um, a respectful job of um, of capturing these names in the best way possible. Um, yeah, I hope Okonkwo is not listening because, sorry. <laughs> yeah. So, I don't know if he's a big podcast guy, to be honest. <laughs> um, so... This was, as, as I said, published in 1958, and then it was um, published in, in Nigeria and then brought to um, the United Kingdom by William Heinemann uh, and then brought on to America. It's a book that has been taught in schools, particularly in Africa for a long time, but then also in throughout the English-speaking world. Um, Heidi, when did you first read this book? I read this in high school. Okay, so you fall under the category of the school People who read it in school. That's right. That's me. Sean, what about you? I read it on my own in college. Self-guided curriculum. Yeah, I sort of happened upon it. Okay. Seemed important. Oh, you happened? Oh, okay. Yeah, so yeah, I mean, I would scan the the bookshelves at the bookstore and buy books based on name recognition. And I had read some Yates at this point. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, you made the connection there. Maybe we... So you're going to be doing a 25-minute lecture on the connections between William Butler Yates and Shinwa Achebe, right? God help me, maybe, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, if it happens, that would be great. Tim, what about you? When did you first encounter this book? I think sometime in my 20s. It was after college. Okay. Okay. I don't really remember when. Is this, and how many times have you read it? This is only my second time. Okay. So I, this is totally new to me. I've never read it. Um, so maybe maybe that's, you know shameful of me to have never read it but it's one of those ones i've always kind of like had on my radar my radar of world literature uh, as a book that i needed to read so uh, it's good to get the you know the push here through through close reads and it's a book that i think we've had mentioned by audience members throughout the years so to everybody who voted for it back in or not voted for it but just suggested it over the years thank you for doing that tim first of all Anything like what's going on in your life? Like people haven't heard from you in a little while. I just want to give you a chance before we dig in too deep into Shebby's book. Is there anything that you would like to, to share? And that's not a leading question. I don't have anything on my mind. I, my life has shrunk a lot. Having an, an mm-hmm. eight month old in the house tends to shrink your life. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. So, I mean, it's not a bad thing. It's like smaller, but deeper is probably the way to, um, mm talk about it. So if you're looking for like 
what sort of extracurriculars I've been getting up to during the last like couple months, I don't have really anything. I got nothing. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm feeding my baby avocado bits and <laughs> banana. And we're like, so you're like halfway to winning the Nobel that's Prize. That's the update we were looking for. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's, that's the update. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Arden's eating bananas and avocado <laughs> rice. And she's crawling, right? She's crawling. Okay. Here's the thing that we've noticed. She's, we've got built-in bookshelves into our walls. Many thanks to those of you who mm-hmm. helped make that possible for our wedding. And Arden is a little bit obsessed with standing up. She's gripping onto the bookshelves. And she stands up and she just kind of pulls books out, looks at them, <laughs> pushes them back in, pulls another one out, throws it on the floor, pulls another one out. So Galen asked me, do you think this like means that customers. she really likes <laughs> Yeah, right. Like most of your customers. <laughs> <laughs> do you think that she, like, this is a sign that she's going to be a reader? And I was like, I could only wish, but I don't think so. I don't think so. Actually, the surest sign that someone's going to be a book lover in the future is that they're surrounded by books as a child. Is There's that like right? data on that. This is true. Really? Yeah. Studies yeah. have shown. Studies show. Yeah. I'm sure like three of them. <laughs> That's exactly what we want to know, though. We Really, what I was asking is, how's your baby? <laughs> yeah. She's doing great. She great. has these big buck teeth that have gone in. <laughs> oh my gosh. She, <laughs> she looks best. like Tom Sawyer or something. <laughs> I'm glad that's going to be on the record for her in the future yeah. to hear that you said that she looks like Tom Sawyer. And Heidi, how are things with going with you? They're so fine. I don't have a adorable baby pulling books off the bookshelf, so I feel like I'm missing out. But I can't wait to... You should send us some pictures. There you go. Tim? I will yeah. send yeah. some pictures. Yeah, I've, you've kind mm-hmm. of gotten off the picture train. Sean also has a baby who's probably pulling bookshelves, books off the bookshelves, true. and none of us care about that. And reading them. Yeah, old news. <laughs> Big deal. Baby number five. <laughs> How is he doing? He's also doing pretty well. Yeah. He's uh he's he stands up now, which is a whole nother, you know, set of difficulties. He can reach the second row of books on the bookshelf. Oh man, yeah, that yeah, that's a, that's a big deal. Yeah. More books to throw on the floor. That's exactly. So right. I was just thinking about how last week at the or last year at the Close Reads Retreat back in the summertime, you your wives were both there with these little babies and how great was that was. Best. And yeah. that's all best. I wanted to say. It was just so great. All week. Yeah, it was so great. great. Okay, well, let's let's dig into this book a little bit. So we're going to talk about part one, and then next week we're going to talk about part two, and then the following week we will do our Q&A episode, and then we will have our end of the year episode sometime at the end of the year, right between Christmas and New Year's probably, or right around Christmas is most likely when we'll, we'll get that up uh, because we want to give people time to get questions in for the Q&A, so we have to get it all scheduled, but... Hopefully we'll have that announced soon. Heidi, this is a book that you read in high school and now you're reading it again. Mm-hmm. Wait, is this the second time? Yes. Okay. How has your opinion of it or just take on it changed? Like, what's, How is the experience different really is what I'm asking. Because mm-hmm. I'm sure your your opinion as a 16-year-old or 17 is very different it's than very now. Very worthless than how is the <laughs> You know, as, as they did say in one rom-com once, books stay the same, but you change. That's so, right. How is your experience different? Also says that about high school girls. So, um, that's, that's that's true. Yeah. <laughs> all right. All right. All right. Yeah. All right. All right. Um, I liked the book in high school, but it didn't make a huge impression on me. Hmm. Um, and I didn't remember it very well. In fact, I don't. Even, I don't remember 
the book as it goes. Like as I read, I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that, but I can't remember enough to predict what's coming or remember what's coming. Um, but I, my understanding certainly is much, much deeper within the cultural context of right now. Right. Um, and, and I'm reminded of how enduringly relevant the, 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 um, the books that kind of immerse us in a culture are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I was thinking it's been a long time since I've read a book that, that has taught me so much about and a, a cultural experience that's entirely different from my own um, and raising the questions we just, you know, we just read a canticle for Leibowitz, which raises the question of is Western culture worth saving? Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I think things fall apart is asking the same question mm. about, um, about this African tribal culture. Um, mm. but it's much more foreign to me. I have no context for this. Um, and so I'm reading it as, as an outsider. Uh, yeah. and, and that's a very different experience of asking that same question. Mm. Um, and so I'm, I've been doing a lot of comparing, um, canticle with things fall apart in terms of the questions that it's raising and my own experience of each culture. One is completely foreign one as fully immersed. Right. And that's yeah. just been really interesting kind of speculation wondering for me. I want to ask the same question to you, Sean, and to you, Tim, but I want to say first that I have had a similar experience, but it's been with Kristen Lavern's daughter, where oh, there's an immersion into this culture, which feels there's just enough of it to feel like something that I'm familiar with, but it's also essentially pretty foreign. And what I like about Kristen Lavern's daughter, beyond just the drama and the writing and all that, is that when presenting that world, it's not really assessing it or judging it or saying that it's customs or whatever are right or wrong. It's just giving us them. And I really appreciate that about this book as well. When we're reading about the customs of these tribes, I'm not getting some kind of, I'm not being told this is, this is right. This is wrong. This is, Oh, this is superstition. This is not superstition. It's just presenting us to them as if they're, they're real living customs and that this is a real living place. And I think a Chevy really uh, captures that captures the worlds in a really vivid way because of that. Um, and that I think makes it the book come alive for me, Tim, how's your experience this time reading it different from when you were in your twenties? I think the biggest change is going to happen in part two, because this is a book about, we wouldn't know it at all up until this point about colonialism. And that part of the book really is told in the second half of the novel. And I think as a 20, let's say I was 23, 24-year-old, I don't think I had much of a vision of like what colonialism was. I'm just, to be totally honest, like my, I think when I graduated from college, it was right about the time that um, university curriculums were starting to pay attention and talk about colonial and post-colonial literature. And so I didn't have the assistance of a teacher kind of telling me what was going on there. And that wasn't much of the conversation in our household. So I anticipate the biggest difference will be felt in the second half of the book. It's funny you mentioned that because I've been thinking about how different this would be for uh, college students now who are, you know, you can go on TikTok and watch 20 different 
videos on colonialism. You can you know you, you can go on Instagram and that's a it's a big topic. There's a, you know, there's a whole subculture of people on the internet talking about colonialism. And and if you're a young person in college now, you're surrounded by those the political questions related to colonialism. So the reading must be very different than it would have been twenty or thirty years ago. Um, but I wonder how right. much it would sharpen. Like I wonder how it would impact the book if you are concerned entirely with politics when you read this book. I wonder how it changes or alters the drama or the characterizations. Like if that becomes what you're so concerned with. And obviously the book is concerned with that. Maybe we need to save that question though for a future, a future epic. Like once we've read the whole book, mm -hmm. Sean, what about you? Like what's your difference in experience? Uh, I'm, I'm with Tim for the most part. I think probably the biggest change is yet to come. I also, I have, I'm reading this again for the first time in, in many years and so the plot is vague in my memory, although I, I have a uh, memory generally of what happens. And I think that when I read it the first time, I was, I sort of understood the, the, the significance of the book in a way that I might not think of it now. Uh, one of the things that I found different already in, in this reading is asking myself more frequently if the culture presented in part one is worth preserving. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think I was far more... To Heidi's point. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think I was yeah. far more indiscriminate uh, on that question in my in my original reading. Uh, and that's, that's a more complicated question for me now. Okay, so but do you think the book is asking us to consider whether it's I, worth saving? I'm not sure yet i would like to get to the end of this of this reading okay. before i decide on that i'm not sure yet i think uh the book is authorial message is sort of elusive in part one it's very journalistic uh, obviously moments are chosen because they have a particular pathos all uh, right there's obviously uh, careful thought going into the selection of what scenes are uh, included in the story and how they're described, but the the language, the prose is pretty uh, mundane and uh, without a lot of uh, editorial kind of voice or overtones. So uh, I think that is a, a question that hangs at this point. Go ahead, Tim. I, I think that's exactly right, Sean. It's in the second half of the book, just to kind of spoil it a little bit, the British are going to show up and the um, personification of the British colonial effort will be a priest. And I think what the book does so well in the first half is it creates a life world. I mean, I think you're right, David. I think it's more, and maybe Sean said this, it's more like a journalistic description of the life world of this tribe in Africa. Hmm. Um, and the part of the reason I think it's so, part of the reason the book is so successful is that that life world is, everything is interlocked. There is hmm. not this gulf between sowing yams and the goddess of rain causing the yams to be, to grow well or grow poorly. Like it's all part of one hold. One, one whole tapestry. In the West, we've very much gotten used to 
a very kind of scientific vision of the world. And I think it's, that comes with great merit and there's also some problems associated with that. So in the second half of the book, when this British missionary shows up, it is a, it is not just like a minor, he's not proposing a minor tweak to the religious system. It is a complete and utter cultural, like infraction that is about to happen. And I think that, I think Shebby's really, really, really smart to create this world that is so locked together, so bound together. All of the rituals and the traditions and religion and family and crops are all part of one seamless whole fabric. And so a missionary coming to this world, there is no way that it cannot be like an absolutely catastrophic change mm. that's about to happen. It's like reading a, a science fiction novel where they do this crazy world building and something is dropped into it. It's funny, David. I've thought about science fiction exactly mm. because I think this is what makes science fiction so interesting is that we don't read science fiction for the most part for like great characterization or like a spellbinding plot. It'd be great. Like, you know, Dune's got elements of both of those things. But the thing we really tune into science fiction for is the world building yeah. and this book in so many ways i thought this is like a science fiction novel of course it's embedded in like a real tribe and a real place yeah. but the world building aspect of it does share a sure a, a genre kinship with with uh science fiction yeah at least the experience for us but but that, but that just goes to show how good he is at the world building go ahead heidi yeah 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 yeah, and I think what makes him really good at it, I think in the hands of a lesser novelist, we might have an idealized world. And it's uh, not right, yeah, yeah. in this yep. book, right? Like it's there's there's wife beating, there's there's human sacrifice, like there's very and and our main character is I mean, that's a risky main character um <laughs> with Okonkwo, right? Um and and so I think I think we are given this world so I, I just think it's so compelling on Shinwa Shebi's part, I got to say it. Um, on Shinwa <laughs> Shebi's part to give us this world that is whole and complete, as you're saying, mm -hmm. um, and profoundly different from our own, and yet not idealized, um, and given to us as brutal and savage yeah. and unjust in many ways, um, as well as being this kind of compelling small localized communal culture uh that in which the people are embedded within it in in with such a deep sense of identity uh and 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 then that gives us an even more holistic vision of what this future infraction as mm. you said um is is intruding upon mm. Mm. And, yeah did anybody else think about um window i, I i'm really going to step into it about like this book as sort <laughs> well, of that's why you're here a wendell berry i'll back up I think three when, minutes ago, his name popped into my head. Oh, really? Yeah. So in Wendell Berry's book, he is telling stories about a bygone era and he's talking about what happens when this sort of like colonialism of the machine or mm -hmm. of the, of a mechanistic view of the world steps into that, that right, yeah. 
old world. I think there's a really big difference between what Wendell Berry is trying to do and Hannah Coulter and his other books is that I think he's very deliberately painting, um, I'm going to call it, I think, a more rosy picture than- An idealized An idealized picture, culture. right. Yeah. And so when the machine comes in, it hurts because we don't want to lose this ideal that he's painted. So this book is working on us in a different way. When the British colonialists coming in, come in, I'm just repeating what you guys have already said. We don't think, man, this beautiful, perfect world where good people, you know, like where, where everyone is virtuous and wise. No, there's like a lot of beating and violence and some madness happening. And so it just really makes the spine conflict of the book pretty complicated. I mean, it, there's a there's a balance because when you look at it, you think about the violence. There's virtue and vices in both. I don't know if it's the equal measure. I haven't thought about it quite that specifically, but there's a lot of virtues too in this world. A lot of things that are appealing and that that are beautiful and um and that are worth saving. And if you were someone who was trying to trying to preserve a culture or wanted to save something or or make people care about it, you'd be more inclined to not have that really balanced view. You'd emphasize right, yeah. The lovely things, the the virtuous things, the things like that that you'd want people to be attached to. Because you'd want them to feel like I'd like to be a part of that. Because once you feel like I'd like to be a part of that, you're most likely to identify with it. And then there you go. As an author, you're successful at that that mission to get it preserved to keep it preserved. But to your point, Heidi, here he doesn't he doesn't whitewash it. He doesn't make it well, that's a terrible term to use for this because of its loaded connotations, but he doesn't try to you know, sanitize make it. it to sanitize it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, that's, I think maybe what makes the question of whether it's preserving complicated, like he allows it to be complicated, even though he clearly loves it. Yeah. I think that's, that makes it more, that makes the question more powerful. Yeah. Tim, you, just a second ago, you were mentioning the idea of the central conflict of the, the book. And I was thinking about the question of plot. Mm. Heidi, for you, when you read it, how does the, like, what's the shape of this story? Because yeah. I was having, like, it's kind of hard to grasp on and say, well, here's the specific plot, at least through the first part. It's kind of episodic and we meet all these different characters and even our main character is, oh, let me ask you this too. Maybe we can set, set this question aside, but I do want to know about the degree to which you guys um, uh, like, care about Okwankwo, mm. like, like what happens to him. Um, you know, whether he's a sympathetic protagonist, but, but, the, the, let's talk about the shapelessness of the plot first and then come back to that. Yeah, I think that those two questions are connected um, pretty strongly. Uh, I, Because I knew I, that this is a book about colonialism, um, it gave me a framework for understanding part one and what Achebe is doing in part one. Right, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Without that, I remember I remember reading this in high school and having no clue what was going on and wondering why I was reading it. I remember being like 17 in my in my English class and being like, what is this book about? I kept looking uh, for a yeah, narrative yeah. thread and not finding it and I lost interest. 
Um, and I ended up finishing the book because it was assigned and never, I didn't have enough literary savvy. I didn't have, um, like the, I didn't have the framework that I do now, the scaffolding that I do now. And I'm look, I know what, what a Chevy is doing, what he's building towards, why we're supposed to be fully immersed in the character the fact that we get glimpses in this whole first section of every single part of village life, right? We have, um, the justice system and the marriage customs and, uh, and like all of these pieces of a holistic village life so that we can understand their communal culture um, and how different it is from ours and how whole and complete it is, as you said, Tim. And that's what he's giving us in part one. Um, but I, I am not sure there's enough of a narrative thread to support it, especially because, as you said, of our of our main character, Okonkwo, who's not very likable, and he doesn't seem to be on a trajectory of change. He seems to remain pretty static throughout, which is the whole point, right? Like he is, he is this culture. Like he is the embodiment of this culture. He is the man that is made by this culture. And so therefore, ergo, he cannot change. And um, and he must kind of hold that static within himself throughout the, the the structure of the book, even though I think he's more sympathetic at the end of part one than he is at the beginning. But that's not because he's changing. It's just because we're seeing a little bit more of him. And and I think that's a big risk on a Chevy's part. And I'm not sure it completely works unless you know what's coming. Hmm. Um, I think once we get to part two, we'll see why. But you got to hang in there a lot of pay a long time as a reader for that to pay off. It's a risk, isn't it, Heidi? It's like, yeah. I mean, structurally, the way he built this book is a huge risk because we, I agree. it's like episode, 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 episode. And, and you're like, okay. With, I, with some pretty gruesome things happening right, occasionally in those right. episodes. And you are like, why do I care? Yeah. Why do I care? Especially because our main character, I felt genuine like sympathy for him when he killed his adoptive son. Like my heart mm. broke for him because he did it in a way because he was just sort of, um, his view of the world and of like the masculine virtues kind of gave him no choice. I mean, and he had to do this horrible deed, which broke his own heart in a way, you know? Yes. And so I had huge amounts of sympathy for him, but anyway. Like the yearling. Yeah. To go back to like the main question, we have to we have to walk a long time before we see any light on the horizon. Or if see not light on the horizon, before we see what our main conflict is gonna be. Exactly. So one thing that's interesting though, how do you said Okonkwo is the man that this culture makes? But wouldn't you agree that he is, or would you agree that he is um like the extreme version, like the, like the most negative. Cause there's other, not all the men are as violent or as, uh, or as um, yeah. intensely troubled. Like I think that's right. But I think Nkonkwo is the standard by which those men, those men are falling short. They're, they're a little more human than he is. Right. Um, and because he has, I really like what you just said, Tim. Like he has all of the perceived masculine virtues of their culture. Now focus on perceived mm. because I don't think those are the true masculine virtues, but I don't think the West's true masculine virtues either. Like there's 
I this isn't a cultural commentary as much as it is we are all so fallen we don't really know what it means to be a real man or a real woman and this it's my dog barking if you can hear it my this oh, I see culture what, I see what you're saying yeah so this this culture has is producing a type of person and Okonkwo is representative of that hmm. so Sean how do you like what's your perspective on on Okonkwo, like, do you find him? Tim just mentioned that you know he find he had there his heart was broken when he killed his adopted son there. So um, what do you find him? I don't know, sympathetic, whatever, whatever the word is. I don't know. It's hard to we're talking about a very complicated character here yeah. who you would normally have as a protagonist. I maybe I find him empathetic. <laughs> I mean, you you have no choice. Uh, because of how much time you spend with him, you really have no choice but to to sympathize with him in certain ways, uh, because but well, and still be human, right? Uh, because you do you see him suffer, and you get to you get a little bit of insight into his own thoughts, not much, but a little bit uh, at the times when he's feeling and thinking things contrary to the values of his culture, uh, right? When he when you get the commentary on why he kills his adoptive son uh, or um, some of those moments where the laws of the society uh, or the religious requirements of the society uh, are clash with the what is perceived to be good or right by individuals. And uh, yeah, I think it's you, you can't help but feel for him in those situations. But I, I think as has already been said, uh, he is the the ideal of a culture that has problematic ideals. Well, what culture doesn't have problematic ideals? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. None. Yeah, but this is foreign to us. And so we, yeah. we're orienting ourselves into it through this representative character. Um, and I think to, I think to Tim's point, it's so he's so beautifully drawn as a character like yeah. he is he's so deeply representative and human at the same yeah. time um and and he's i just think he's perfect like the characterization of this society i think is incredibly well done on a craft way and craft wise um what i what i am what I'm not sure of is whether or not there's enough stakes in part one to like hold the reader who doesn't have to read it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's a good question. <laughs> so for, yeah, you know, it's interesting for me. I mean, I, I did have to read it, I suppose. I found the writing to be really beautiful mm -hmm. and that was keeping me going. I mean, I, I, was, not, I wasn't yeah. having any trouble going. I read it pretty quickly. And because I found the characters in the world building, compelling combined with the the prose i i found it pretty compellingly to, to keep compelling to keep going along but i wanted to ask you guys something that i think is related to this it might seem like a shift but i think it'll bring us back around i was reading a couple of quotes about this book and one of them is from a chevy himself who said that the popularity of things fall apart in my own society can be explained simply this was the first time we were seeing ourselves as autonomous individuals rather than half people, or as Conrad would say, rudimentary souls. And then another quote here, 
<clears throat> both of these actually can be found on Wikipedia. So I was just doing some of my you know basic research, and these quotes popped up, and I and I wanted to bring them up. So then uh, there's a Niger- Nigerian uh, Nobel laureate whose last name is Soyinka. Um, I think it's Wole Soyinka, and he says he describes this book as quote the first novel in English which spoke from the the interior of the African character rather than portraying the African as an exotic as the white man would see him. Mm-hmm. So we've got these two writers who are talking about the idea of, by the way, Oh, it's, it's terribly sad. Yeah. Um, and they're talking about the power of this story and the pack, the power of being given a voice and being, being looked at as people, not as rudimentary souls, as Conrad put it. So I wanted to ask you guys, and we could have done this off the air, I suppose, but look, it's no secret. We're four white people living in the 21st century who don't who who have a great body of literature at our hands that speak to our experiences so how should we do you think approach a book like this that does that for for people that are not us and i feel like this could be something we could you could this is one of those conversations you could have about any book um all kinds of books with students and children <laughs> uh, let alone ourselves but i just want to put it out there i mean maybe it, i just want to i want to tell you david when you when you began your caveat emptor, you said, you know, I just want to say we are four white people. And I thought that you said F-O-R instead of (laughs) F-O-U-R. And I wanted to be like, wait, David, where are we going here? We're we're four white people. (laughs) But we're definitely for other people. We're advocating for white men. I okay, picked up so kind of quickly that I was like, oh, okay, okay. For, okay. for the, rec- for One, the two, record, three, four. We, are, we are for all people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Quattro yes. people for all people. We are four people. white people for all people. <laughs> nice. nice. Um, I, I think one place... Throwing to, my hands up. ...to start for me... <laughs> as one of the white people on the podcast discussing this <laughs> book written by Nigerian is um, like genuine admiration and affection for like the beautiful things in this culture, like the, mm. the dense community bonds in this village are something that are so foreign to me. And like, I really, and I know that most human cultures functioned in this way we, it's our culture that is like so really hyper individualized and does yeah. not have these dense communal bonds. Um, I love the traditions and the kind of respectful approach toward elders and people of wisdom in um, this village. So there's so mm-hmm. many things. We talked about the things that are problematic about the world that he's building, but there are so many things about this world that he's building. And I'm like, oh gosh, we don't have that. And we like, we suffer because we don't have that. So, I mean, I think one place to begin is like a real admiration for the beautiful and glorious things that are part of this world that is being built. Yeah. Although I don't think that's, I don't think that that's unusual or out of the ordinary, right? I, what David, what you described as the sort of the, the collection of Western literature, I think also doesn't really speak to my experience. <laughs> uh, right? Uh, Homer isn't describing my experience any more than this book is, or A Tree Grows in Brooklyn isn't really speaking yeah. to my experience. Okay. So yeah. I I don't really, 
I don't feel a great need to sort of put, categorize this book as a foreign artifact any mm. much more than than any other literature I read. Uh, but which, which is still to say that no matter what we're reading then, I think Tim's point is is the operative point, like to see what is good and and beautiful in it. Wait, but Sean, is that actually true that like your experience, you don't you don't feel like you have more shared experience with a tree grows in Brooklyn? Surely that's not true. Maybe. I mean, because they, you know, it's about Americans. That was a it was a it was a random example. I I think there's a spectrum but, no, for, for sure. sure. Yeah. But and I'm gonna even say something like, um Have you read A Tree Grows in Brooklyn though? Tara? No, I haven't <laughs> you read that. Because it's about a it's about a black girl. But it's still it's like Brooklyn. the United States in the twentieth century. It's and true. Like it's the true. English language. I mean, there's just a lot more shared experience there, even though of course there are differences. Yeah. The Homer one actually kind of makes sense to me though. The Homer one makes sense, but I would even say, I mean, I, I, I would Except even that we're, say, our world is so shaped by exactly, right, exactly, yeah, so shaped by the uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey. Like we, one of the things this this brings up. Well, Heidi, you go ahead, and then I'll come back to this. I'm I'm with Sean on this though because I think that one of the one one of the purposes of literature is to humanize everything is to create a shared experience not to at this like when i read this book it is it is foreign to me but the reason it's compelling is not because it's foreign it's because it's human it's because i'm recognizing a shared humanity in an experience that's not my own and that i have you know in a tree grows in brooklyn in Homer and all of it. And, and so to me, I very much resist the idea that literature should make me feel more separate and more other than, than more alike. And, and so in reading this, I'm compelled by the differences and I'm also compelled by the depth of the humanity that's expressed and so i like really love that and in some ways i think aren't we aren't we for (laughs) f-o-u-r privileged white people some of the target audience of this that's intended to say hey you guys there's a whole world that you don't know about that you should value but not idealize, right? And um, and hmm. and and understand the truth that it's just as fully human as your experience, and that and and give us then, as you said, this like more expansive vision of what it means to be human, to acknowledge otherness, but to 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 understand and enter into the full humanity of all of us. I think it needs to bring us together yeah. more than it keeps us apart. Do you guys? Ever- I, I don't deny. I don't deny yeah. that at all. My, I think the only point, the only objection that I have to Sean's claim was, I just think that the distance that he has to travel to enter that kind of sense of shared humanity is a relatively short distance in a tree grows in Brooklyn compared to things fall apart. I think it's just a longer distance you have to. Tra- I I grant that. I think that yeah. I think the, the, the tunnel is greater. narrower. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> 
as you get as you get further out. So, you know, there's yeah. this quote here where where Achebe says, "This was the first time we were seeing ourselves as autonomous individuals rather than half people, or as Conrad would say, rudimentary souls." When you when I read a book like this, um, sometimes I have, and I, and I know that it means that to people. You know, it could be like you watch a movie or or listen to music or whatever that is that is precious to a culture for the way that it that it speaks for their experience or gives voice to people who don't normally get their voices prioritized. I find a sort of I feel myself like with the sort of response I think there's a responsibility to experience it in the most like humble way possible. I don't really know what to say. Like how do you read something when you know that it means so much to people um and still be what I'll use this word loosely, but still be critical of it. I mean, like still do the work of a critic. I don't mean like try to nitpick and pull it apart, but how do you, how do you balance those two things of reading? Well, closely reading carefully, being willing to say, well, this is where I think there's a flaw, but also recognizing that what's happening here is this book is giving voice to people who didn't, who haven't felt like they had it. Is there, is there like, is that a, do you guys feel a tension there ever? Cause maybe that's just, Maybe that's just me. I don't even know how to describe what I'm feeling exactly. <laughs> no, I think I think you just have to do what you just said. I think you have to acknowledge that both of those things are true and and maybe have to be happening at the same time. Uh, as you were saying that, it made me think a lot of parent-teacher conferences. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I want to hear that. As a teacher, <laughs> pretty much every student you encounter is what you just described to their parents, right? Like the work that speaks about them as a culture and there's a lot of feeling and emotion wrapped up in that if you criticize my kid you're criticizing my ability to raise kids (laughs) exactly and right they might even come saying yeah okay you're a professional critic like give me your opinion but they don't 100 want that opinion (laughs) i love this sean sean this is such a great comparison but you also have to recognize that that is real and and valid right this this is uh you know a life that has been live together and, and been invested in this child by these people that aren't you and that you haven't had to suffer for and sacrifice for. And I think all of those things have to happen. Yeah, and that's same time. really good. I think I'm, I think that question is particularly relevant, not to the book, but to our cultural moment, the question that David's asking um, that sure. this, this book is speaking for a culture that right now is is a very important this is a very important type of conversation we're having in the public square in this cultural moment and and this book is coming from that culture right or cultures like it um and so what we're asking i think is not just how do we read this book but how do we respond to that because because we're reading this book, then how do we respond to this whole idea that's in the culture right now of like, this is how you read books by um, representative voices of marginalized cultures. Um, and that's a big relevant question in the public square. Um, yeah. You're and, right. That it's they're two different yeah. questions. So yeah. I'm not necessarily asking, how do we read this book? I guess I, I am asking, this is there's a particular kind of reading that we're doing here. And what is our responsibility right. to what is that supposed to look like, I guess? Right. And I think we do honor to the book when we treat it like we're reading any other really good book. 
It, yeah. Right. It worth like, and, and that I think Tim is what I was saying, trying to say about a tree grows in Brooklyn or Homer or whatever, that I don't think we should have to be careful with it. I think that it does more honor to it to read it with, with the same critical judgments with which we approach any book. Oh yeah. Yeah. And the same, um, the same personal posture towards which we approach any book because it's that good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, to your point, when someone argues with you, it's a respect that you're like, you're viewed as a peer, you're worthy of being argued against, but like not arguing with someone is kind of like a, a, can be Mm -hmm. a signal of like profound disdain, you know, like, you know, you don't yes. get it. You don't yeah. get it. I'm not even going to bother with like, you. Like, go sit at the kids' table. We're having right, a, exactly. Right. Yeah, like this exactly. isn't a book for the kids' table. This book is compelling. It's rich. Totally it's nuanced. Like, we should engage with it just yeah. like we would with any other book because it's deserving of that. Yeah, yeah. What do you think this book does does most effectively? Is it just is the world building and the characterization? Then, I mean, are we is that a consensus that we've kind of come to? I think, I think the writing so far. is fabulous too. Mm, yeah, like it yeah. reads a bit like a translation, um, and it like in a good like, way. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Like it. It. It feels like, like there's very few contractions. For example, mm. right? I don't remember if there's any. Um, mm. and like the writing has this, um this like very cool, like beautiful collision of like almost like stilted with poetic. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I love it. I just think the writing is the, the craft of the sentence making is so beautiful. Like a reserve, a sort of reserved formalism about it. Yes. Yes. Tim, what were you going to say? I appreciate the high number of, non-translated words from Igbo. Mm-hmm. You know, there's even a glossary in the back with probably yeah. 40 words in which we give we get greater definition of what these particular words mean. And I think this is a huge contribution to the world-building aspect of it because we have to sort of slow down, or at least I did, sound the word out, and then by context, piece together what exactly is going on. Oh, this is a medicine woman, or oh, this is a whatever, a, a type of nut. Um, and so there's this kind of dense cultural import given because the words are not translated. The words are just kind of too complex to do um, an English substitute for. So he yeah. doesn't do it. I'm not going to yeah. do it. I'm going to keep the original language words in there. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I I love that too. I just recently also read a translation of Beowulf where the author had tried to do something similar and about 8% of the words he doesn't translate, mostly nouns that he thinks are really important mm. to the meaning of the original. And the idea being that that there's something of the culture itself that is in the yeah. language. And so the more you can encounter the language the, the original source language, like the more you can uh, encounter the culture uh, and that the translation sometimes yeah. gets in the way of. Uh, so I think, I think a similar thing is done here. He, that's part of the world building is where we're brought into the language uh, of, of the, 
the people that were. But it's also a really reading about important connection to Okwankwo himself, who can't really express himself. He doesn't like he ex- he only expresses like yeah. the most extreme emotions, right? <laughs> and it talks about how he, he doesn't know how to he doesn't know how to uh, tell his children that he likes them you know he he breaks into a rage and so there's the language really matters and one of his great vices the things that holds him back as a character is his inability to 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 express himself that really like that's a compelling factor in him is his like broodingness Mm. and the violence that comes like when the violence comes because it's like volcanic right i think it even uses that metaphor by the way one thing i really like about this book is it's almost it it one crutch that a lot of modern writers have is they use too many similes, and here he doles his similes out like almost like epic similes in Homer or something like that. Although Homer was maybe a touch excessive with them, if you want to, you know, we could go there. No, David, but I get what but, you're saying. Whoa, whoa, whoa! whoa, whoa. Uh, <laughs> I get what you're saying. Yes. Uh, and so he, when he, when he doles out those similes, like the ones he uses for Alquanquo's rage, for example, are are really really interesting. And I think at one point he does refer to him as volcanic, and so it's telling the story through those those images and the metaphors are all tied to the culture or the world that they're living in. He doesn't, it's not, it's so specific, they're so specific and that brings alive this character even more. Hmm. Um, Tim, were you going to say something? Well, I was going to swerve a little bit. I have a claim and I want to see if you guys agree. And if you agree, this is exciting. My question is why? Yeah. For me, there are only really three characters that have personality thus far in the book. Okonkwo, obviously, his father, and his daughter. And I don't think we have a ton from his daughter, Azinma, but we have a little bit of a glimpse of her personality. The wives, I'm sorry, the wives have seemingly, we've given, we, we are given hardly any personality about them with the exception of um, the mother of Azinma who follows her, her all yeah. the way to this to this cave. And we get a little bit of her personality, but man, so much of the book consolidates characterization in a Congo, almost to the exclusion of everybody else. So that's my question is, do you agree with that statement? You're like, no, Tim, I think actually like there's like six really, you know, kind of full characters in here. This is not a criticism. This is right, just an observation right. yeah, about yeah, yeah. like the author's intent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I Maybe think Akwafi is a little bit more well, more fleshed out. Who? Uh, Who? The Izimna's mother, the second wife, Akwafi. Okay. I think she's more fleshed out. But I think you're right. Like the the it seems to be that Okonkwo and then just the village itself, Umofia, is is almost like a character, right? In the same yeah. way that like yeah. Port Royal is a character, right? Like in in Wendell Berry's books, um, we're given the personality of this place and the people who populate it kind of like pop in and out um, yeah. as yeah. Uh, as as needed in order to explore the character of the place. Um, but I think that I think a Quaffy. It would be the one I would say, yeah, I think she's a little bit more fleshed she's out. She's more fully drawn, yeah. Um, but overall, I think you're right. What about the sons? Yeah, I think so too. Noyer. I think a little bit about him. Yeah, they come he in and disappear. they have yeah. 
yeah, they have a place, right? It's like, I don't, I don't know. I'm trying to think of another example of this. Like, it's like characters in a show that like have like a cameo appearance when they're like a full character and then they kind of like go away again. Yeah, 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 but yeah. you have like your main characters. Like um, Stewie in Succession, Heidi. Yes. Yes. <laughs> like Stewie. You and I are the only Succession. ones who know that, yeah. probably. Yeah. So That's okay, a great example. Stewie, Stewie is <laughs> yeah. the is like the finance guy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um so Tim Tim knows too. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yep. So whatever guys. Okay, let me ask you this then. What does what is a Chevy trying to tell us or or whatever? You just go with the word tell us sure. by rooting the book in this volcanic rage of Okwankwo. Like so it maybe it's like the Iliad, right? Sing goddess the the rage of the Okwankwo. Rage of Okwankwo. What's yep. what's his father's name? Um Unoka. Unoka, sing goddess the rage of Unoka's son. Um what what is he trying to tell us? What is he asking us to to think about or care about by rooting the book, especially this first half, in this volcanic rage of his protagonist? I especially think when it's, it's a book that's trying to give voice to a culture. I think I, that that's what I think it is. I mean, I think that Ashebi is clearly an accomplished novelist. I know this was his debut novel, um, but the it's it's crafted beautifully. Like he is, he's a great writer right out of the gate, right? Um, and yeah. his so Okonkwo is he's not an allegory like he's a right. fully human character in himself but at the risk of repeating it's not even the risk of repeating myself I'm just going to straight up repeat <laughs> myself like he is the embodiment of the uh of the masculine ideal of this culture but it he's portrayed with with nuance and depth and the sense of this masculine ideal is profoundly and fundamentally flawed right and um but there's also some true virtues in it. he's truly courageous like he's truly protective the way that he follows after his daughter when she's taken to god like he has the piety to let her go but the, but work the protectiveness, yes. he works hard yes, he's hard working um and uh but at the same time he's savage He's deeply insecure. He's proving himself all the time. Um, he lacks compassion. Like, so he's he's fully human. And and that those are kind of the same ways you could describe Umofia and this tribal culture itself. And so I think that 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 pride and anger, that wrath that that is this fundamental kind of crack in his nature and keeps him from being fully good is the same thing at the root of this tribal culture. Well, I think, too, that it serves the purpose of also uh, just from a practical writerly standpoint, it helps. It offers the opportunity to show where the society uh, resists the the characteristics mm. or even the vices of of its inhabitants. Right. So his anger gets him in trouble sometimes. Uh, it's not as if his culture celebrates it universally. Yeah, Okonkwo, he's the guy who always gets angry. Yeah. He's the rage of yeah. volcano. Love that guy. Uh, right? He beats his wife during the the week of peace uh, when no one is supposed to be angry or True. commit violence, and he's he's punished and censured for yeah. it. Because it's an yeah. honor culture. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and as Tim said before, right, there's uh, every aspect of life is so fundamentally linked yeah. uh, that your your personal <laughs> your personal vices and sins against members of your family uh touch 
your agricultural labors, which touch your uh, religion, which touch the the well being of the entirety of, of and your, sometimes it, you know, community. You know, like how like how part one ends when he's off in exile. Oh, that was essentially an accident, it says, right? But because of because of yeah, you know, right. whatever evil spirits are following him at that point, he has he has to leave. Um, so yeah, everything is <laughs> Heidi. Would you say that this is well, or Tim even, or Sean? <laughs> Guys, would you? Uh, <laughs> Any of you? <laughs> like or David? The Iliad's kind of like this too, right? Like it's the 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 vices and virtues of the people are kind of rooted in this character of Achilles, right? To some yeah, extent, right, right. Yes, I can't. I have been thinking a lot about a compare the comparison between. And this he book also and, is isolated from his own culture for embodying it, right? Yeah, and enacting it, right? Yeah. And this rage, passion. Yes. You know, there's no, there's not. You know, there's no. Um, we haven't had a, a Briseis type situation yeah. yet, but true. Um, it doesn't seem like it'd be far off. Except that the gods have demanded this uh, foster son, essentially. Yeah. yeah, that's true. The rage of the gods is also a, a a part of this story a little bit. We don't have they don't have the personality, the the, the characterization that they would have in in Homer. Um, all right, let's think about it. Let's think about wrapping this up. What do we need to talk about before we move on to part two? I mean, part two is going to have. The colonialism it's going to have this new character it's going to have a lot of questions for us to dig into and we do have the q a episode um but tim what do we what do we need to t- what do we need to address what do we need to talk about what has been left unturned you're muted we've, no, you're we've already said this so this is not something that's been left unturned but i think for me it was really helpful when i kind of realized that novels tend to operate in one of two ways either they're advocating for kind of like a different point of view or they are journalistically showing the world as it is. And I think the best books manage to do both of those kind of seamlessly. The I think we're all familiar with books that are advocating to such an extent that they make their characters just their own mouthpieces and things like that. Um, right. Yeah. And we're also familiar with a kind of like straight up journalistic exposition that leaves us thinking like, wait, what does the author actually think about anything? I think that if we're going to like choose one side or the other to read this book, I think we should probably fall a little bit more on the journalistic side. Like, let's look at this world that's being creative and be reluctant to pass judgment. You know what I mean? Like, of course, we're always in a past judgment on a book. It's part of what a reader does. But I, for me, I think that the genre of the book lends itself to being read better, less as an advocacy piece, and a little bit more as a journalistic endeavor. Reminds me a lot of uh, Hemingway, this book does. Um, Heidi, what about you? What do we need to, what stones need to be uncovered here before we Go to part I two. don't know. I've I have anything to add to what Tim said. I think that was just really good. Sean. Yeah. You got anything, Sean? Sean, you disappeared no, for a few minutes in the middle. No one would know it except now that I'm saying it. Uh so is there right. anything that you just would like to get off your off your chest? Anything you want to say? Offline. I mean, I said some brilliant things when I when I was disconnected. Uh, they they're, they, they're gone now though. Yeah, I don't even out, remember that. Yeah. The, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, they seem mind blowing at the time, though. Yeah, 
When your own ideas seem mind blowing to you, it's probably best to not say them. Though. Right. If you have a brilliant idea and it's not recorded <laughs> right. on the internet, yeah. did it really happen? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's probably, probably better that way. Yeah. Well, Tim, it's been great having you back. Yeah. You're oh, you're muted. You're muted. It's been really nice to be back, and it's <laughs> been really nice to join on this particular book. I like this book. Mm-hmm. Was this yeah. what one that was this your recommendation for this year? Your I'm pretty book? sure it was. Right, okay. you guys. The yeah. people can go back and listen, of course. I think that's right. Yeah. If it, if it wasn't your pick, yeah. you advocated yeah. pretty strongly for it. So it's, it, it's a good thing you're here for, for the one that you picked. And it's just great to have you. And it's great to end the year with all four of us uh, yeah, on, on an episode together. It's really fun. That's right. Sean. Hey, David, can I make a little plug? Yeah, Speaking please. of like end of episode reunions. Yeah. Um, The three of of you joined me very recently for what will be the last episode or like the the last play of Shakespeare's that has yet to be covered on the Plays the Thing, the podcast that plays the thing, your one-stop podcast for all things Shakespeare. That will be coming out in about one month. Okay. That was really fun. Stay tuned. Big accomplishment there by you, Tim. So what are you going to do after? Are you going to still have other episodes? I'll have other episodes and uh, we will do interviews, but we're also going to kind of dip into the back catalog because there's really great stuff. We've done all the plays now. So we'll dip into the back catalog and bring it back um, to the top of the stream. Got it. Okay. Sean, anything you want to say before we go? It's a pleasure to know you all. (laughs) (laughs) Why does he say that? I'm start laughing. (laughs) Like, I tried being nice. I tried trying to, but it's just not. I, I just don't really know actually. if that's what you wanted to hear or not. I just wanted. To, you know, is there any, any stones that you want to un- overturn before we before we go? I don't. I don't think so. I'm excited to rediscover the back half of this book because it, it has been a long time for me, but I'm enjoying it so far. Well, I'm excited to uh, to figure out whether it uh, has any more Homeric similarities in the back half. Um, does Agamemnon show up? Is there a Hector? Ooh, could be. Is there a Patroclus? Is there Helen? We'll see. Troy? <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, don't forget that uh, next week we'll finish the book. Then after that, we got the Q and A episode, and somewhere along the way, we're going to record our best of the year, our like our favorite books of the year. Favorite episode. books. Um, we also have a close reads of the movies episode on Casablanca ready to go. That'll be up soon, and then we're going to do a Christmas themed one too. So we got lots of content for you. Um. And just a, we appreciate everybody who, who listens, who's part of this community, part of this conversations. Uh, we're we're grateful and uh, just glad to be glad to be having these conversations with you. So, for Heidi White, for Tim McIntosh, and for Sean Johnson, I'm David Kern. Until next time, happy reading. Mm-hmm.